It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, the best of the essential and the unexpected from across this week's coverage. I'm Lane Green, The Economist's language columnist, and on your menu... The abiding power of the words of Martin Luther King, how Peru's space agency is helping the country's subsistence farmers, and could Britain's queen be related to the Prophet Muhammad? But we begin with our cover story. Despite the impression you may get from the news, the world has rarely been so peaceful. War is becoming less common and less deadly, but fast-growing cities in the developing world face a different threat. In 2016, 68% of violent deaths were murders. We argued that murder can and must be solved, and the world should start by taking a long and hard look at Latin America. It has 8% of the world's people, but 38% of its recorded murders. Counting the costs of police, hospitals, victims, lost incomes and so on, the bill for violent crime comes to 3.5% of GDP. The greater toll is human, mothers and fathers burying children, children brought up without a parent, and societies deprived of tens of thousands of citizens in the prime of their lives. In some areas, the key culprit is drugs. In others, it's organized crime, the fallout of war, or a lethal cocktail of all of these. But in every case, rapid, chaotic urbanization makes the problem worse. Urbanisation itself is welcome because it boosts incomes and growth. It need not lead to violence. Look at India and China, which have relatively low crime rates. But it can feed a vicious cycle, as the proliferation of murder destroys trust between the police and the people they are meant to protect. The situation is becoming critical. By 2030, according to HSBC, a bank... 42 of the 50 most populous cities will be in emerging markets. Dhaka, Karachi and Lagos, each crammed with roughly 25 million people, will join the 10 largest. So, we argue, these cities must learn from Latin America's deadliest examples. El Salvador, though off the main drug trafficking corridor, has struggled to establish peace since the end of civil war in 1992. The police were unable to cope with violent new residents who arrived in the slums, street gangs like MS-13 and Barrio 18. In 2015, El Salvador became the world's most deadly country, bar Syria. 95% of murders go unsolved. But though El Salvador is still grappling with its gangs, the continent also holds the answers. Take Cali in Colombia, where murder used to be the leading cause of death. The mayor was a surgeon who realised that murder was like a disease. He set up violence observatories to study precisely how people, places and behaviour led to killings. They found that, even amid a raging drugs war, most murders resulted from drunken brawls. 
Restrictions on alcohol and guns helped cut murders by 35%. Other Colombian cities tweaked Cali's evidence-based policing to suit their own needs. Police and judicial reform and aid from the United States were crucial too. Learning from Latin America's successes could save hundreds of thousands of lives around the world. You can find out how by reading the briefing in this week's edition of The Economist. And for solutions to the world's most pressing problems delivered to your door, inbox, or smartphone every week, visit subscriptions.economist.com. Let's tune in to Economist Radio now. In our current affairs podcast, The Week Ahead, we discussed a man whose life and untimely death continue to shape America. Martin Luther King was assassinated 50 years ago last week, but he lives on in his famously powerful speeches. Professor Wayne Flint of Auburn University told us how Dr. King found his voice. The Week Ahead is published every Friday. News of two fatal collisions with autonomous cars in the last few weeks has focused attention on safety features. One problem the vehicles face is that their LIDAR and radar systems struggle to detect dark colors, a serious problem when 17% of cars on the road are black. Luckily, paint companies are stepping up to the challenge. Paul Markilli, our innovation editor, came on Babbage, our science and technology podcast, to tell us more. Now, it's very unlikely that people are saying, well, we're going to have all our cars painted white. You know, we still want black ones, we still want grey ones, and some unfortunate people still want brown ones. And that's going to be a problem. So what's needed is some kind of paint that allows people to have the colours they want, but also reflect the signals from radar and LIDAR. And the inspiration for that, oddly enough, is the aubergine, or the eggplant for our American listeners, which is a really dark purple, and yet at its leisure in sunny fields, it's actually very cool. The reason for that is that the light goes through the dark surface and reflected out by the white inside. So if you could engineer paint to do the same thing, you'd have a reflective surface that's also a dark surface. So what he's saying is you can have any color you like, as long as it's aubergine. Babbage is published every Wednesday. Meanwhile, on The Economist Asks, our chat show, our guest had bad news for Tesla, Uber, and all their friends in Silicon Valley, no matter how smart their paint. Kai-Fu Li used to be head of Google in China and is now the CEO of Sinovation Ventures, a venture capital firm focusing on Chinese tech startups. A lot of people still have the outdated view that Chinese companies are copycats, but we've gone way beyond that. I think uh, the Chinese companies started like as copycats, learned very quickly, and are now very innovative. I think the Chinese companies are much tougher in competition. They come up with much better business models. So I think uh, there is a great underestimation and uh, about Chinese companies. And I also think uh, when someday the two sets of companies compete, uh, the Chinese entrepreneurs on the average will eat the Silicon Valley entrepreneurs for lunch. You can hear the rest of that interview and all our programs by subscribing to Economist Radio on Apple Podcasts. 
other podcast apps are available too. And while you're in there, give us a rating. It helps us keep doing what we do and do it even better. Turning back to our print edition now, an article in our America section investigated a rather curious crop. To the Quechua-speaking subsistence farmers who live in the higher reaches of the Peruvian Andes, the sphagnum moss that upholsters the land near their villages is a nuisance. They burn it away to clear land for planting traditional crops, like potatoes. But while potatoes are cheap as chips, that pesky moss turns out to be green gold. Moss is an internationally traded commodity. Canada, the biggest exporter, sold more than one million tonnes of decomposed moss from peat bogs last year for around $337 million. The absorbency of moss makes it useful for potting exotic plants like orchids. Because of its acidity, farmers add it to the soil in which they grow such foods as blueberries. And that's just the beginning. Moss is popular for living walls that are sprouting in European and North American cities. In the United States, owners of swimming pools install sphagnum filters to reduce the need for chlorination. The same technology can make water potable. Peru came to the moss market late, but luckily they've been lent some rocket fuel. Peru's moss miners have enlisted help from the country's space agency. It is using data gathered from a French-built satellite, which also tracks coca production and deforestation, to map mossy places. Our paper was full of unlikely alliances this week. The Middle East and Africa section recounted the legend of the Queen and the Prophet. According to reports from Casablanca to Karachi, the British monarch is descended from the Prophet Muhammad, making her a cousin of the kings of Morocco and Jordan, not to mention of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei, Iran's supreme leader. The claim was first made many years ago, but for some reason is now in the news again. Why is not clear. But in March, a Moroccan newspaper called Al-Uzbu traced the Queen's lineage back 43 generations. Her link to Mohammed has previously been verified by Ali Gomar, the former Grand Mufti of Egypt, and Burke's Peerage, a British authority on royal pedigrees. Much hinges on a Muslim princess called Zaida, who fled a Berber assault on her hometown of Seville in the 11th century and wound up in the Christian court of Alfonso VI of Castile. But Zaida's own origins are debatable. This flurry of genealogical speculation has provoked mixed reactions in the Arab world. Some have warned of a perfidious plot to revive the British Empire with help from Muslims, but others welcome the news. It builds a bridge between our two religions and kingdoms, says Abdul Hamid al-Auni, who wrote the article in Al-Uzbu. Other reports have called the Queen Saida or Sharifa, titles reserved for the Prophet's descendants. Her son, Prince Charles bin Philip, seems to be intrigued by Islam. He is said to want a multi-faith coronation and to be ordained as defender of faith, not the Christian faith. He might try Amir al-Mu'minin, commander of the faithful, an honorific favoured by Muslim rulers. And finally, our books and arts section encountered someone who would surely have enjoyed both the sublime and the ridiculous elements in that story. 
Plofskin, Pluffskin, Pelican G, sing the birds in Edward Lear's poem The Pelican Chorus. The joyful wordplay is typical of the man who created the Yongi Bongi Bow and the Dong with a Luminous Nose, made limericks fashionable and imagined odd yet devoted pairs in his poems, most famously An Owl and a Pussycat. But the man behind that famous eloping couple has remained rather a mystery. In a new biography, Edward Lear, A Life of Art and Nonsense, Jenny Uglow draws back the curtain. Lear was born in 1812 in North London, one of somewhere between 17 and 21 children. He resented his unstable financial start to life after his father, who worked in the city, fell into debt. With a flair for the dramatic, Lear described selling drawings and teaching art for bread and cheese. His art was his escape. His watercolours went far beyond accuracy. His dizzying sense of the overlap between animal and human brought out the character of creatures. He turned restlessness into a profession by becoming a landscape painter, travelling to Italy, Greece, Albania, the Levant, Egypt and India. He also began making money from publishing the nonsense poems and ditties he wrote for friends. But the joy his work brought people masked a deep melancholy, what he called the morbids. He never married, and though many papers relating to his intimate relationships were burned, Ms. Uglo describes his pain at realising that the great love of his life, Frank Lushington, was an impossibility. Instead, he filled his life with hundreds of correspondents and several close friends, including Alfred and Emily Tennyson, 10,000 angels boiled down. The book paints a tender portrait of the man described as an eerie query, sometimes weary, sometimes cheery, Edward Lear. And while we're in poetical mood, two weeks ago we asked listeners to send in their haikus. The topic was, perhaps predictably, podcasts, and we were particularly tickled by this one from Ali Parviainen of Helsinki in Finland. Commute to office through morning traffic at dawn. Podcast perks me up. We welcome correspondence from our listeners, rhyming or otherwise, to radio at economist.com. Or you can find us on Twitter at Economist Radio. That's it for this week's tasting menu. But as ever, you can go deeper into all these stories online at economist.com. I'm Lane Green. In London, this is The Economist. <laughs>